You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. Welcome back to another episode of the VC Hour. I'm really enjoying our previous episodes. We're talking about various aspects of salvation, and uh, we're working towards a transition to a new topic in which I'm going to take you through the book of Malachi. Now, I don't know how you feel about the book of Malachi, but I love it. I love the book of Malachi because Malachi starts out by telling us that God loves us. I know it may be a surprise. You hear minor prophets. You ever read some of those prophecy books? They can be pretty heavy and uh, very challenging, a lot of condemnation in those books. But the book of Malachi starts by God saying he loves us. He loves his people. He really does. And even though he's going to tell them a lot of hard things for them to hear, and he definitely is going to tell them hard things to hear. Hear things, by the way, that still apply to us. It's still about the church for the day. There's zero question about that. Nevertheless, He begins by saying, I love you. The basis of all of it, really, is his love for his people. And how does the book end? Well, after a long series of messages where he's telling them they're doing the wrong thing and they really don't want to believe him, they don't want to accept what he's saying, they argue with him, at the end of the book of Malachi, he tells them, and that's why I'm going to rescue you. I love you. You're doing all these terrible things you shouldn't be doing. And in the end, he says, and that's why I'm going to rescue you. That's a beautiful book, isn't it? I hope you'll hang with me. We're not going through Malachi today. That's just a little taste. We'll start with it in the next episode. But I had someone who asked me some questions about the book of Romans and uh, took a bit of time to answer their questions. And I wanted to share some of those answers with you as well. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're looking just at verse 1. This is what it says. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times we hear that word worship, and you automatically start thinking about music. I don't know what it is. I know a bit of the Christian history, especially in the U.S., that created that idea. Uh, but you even hear people talk about, we're going to have some worship, and then we're going to have some preaching. And what they mean by worship usually is a loud praise band and a lot of hand-waving and waving back and forth, the speakers cranked up. I'm here in Uganda. I get to see a lot of churches that go a lot of places, and I hear the same terminology. I hear them talk about worship. Most of the time, they're talking about music. Now, there is no question that when we talk about church, music is a part of worship. There's no question. But when we hear the word worship? Should we think only of music? Well, within the context of a, of a service, all of it is worship. So the preaching of the Word, prayer, the sacraments, so that means the Lord's Supper and baptism, these are all worship. But the Bible also uses the word worship, not just in that specific sense, talking about what's going on in the church, but also uses it in a broad sense as well. This is what it's talking about here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's talking about worship, how we're supposed to worship with our whole lives. 
It begins really with the word, therefore. That means what he's about to say is based on his previous statements. Now, it would be very true if I were to tell you that he's saying, therefore, in a sense, based on everything that's happened before Romans chapter 12. There's absolutely no question about that. But more specifically, he seems to be looking at verses 30 through 36 of chapter 11. This is what it says. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God was consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. What was he telling us? He's telling us that the great glory of God has been displayed to all people. That's a major theme, especially in the second half of the book, this idea that God is the God not just of the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, but also of the Gentile or the Greek, that is, everybody else. I think most of the people who are listening to me, certainly most of the people who are listening to me right now in Kampala are just like me. They're not Jewish by birth, not socially, not ethnically, and certainly not religiously. And yet the glory of God has been revealed to us as well. Praise be to God. And in fact, specifically, it's tied to the great mercy of God. We have received mercy, and this displays to us a God who is quite glorious. And it is based on that that Paul here appeals to us, and he appeals to us like brothers. I love the word that's used there, appeal. Appeal. Appeal is like what we find in the book of Philemon, sometimes here in Uganda called Philemon, which is this idea that people can be asked quite strongly to respond correctly and from a heart of gratitude. I don't know how much you know about the book of Philemon, but in the book of Philemon, there's been a a slave who has disobeyed his master in some ways. It appears has taken some goods that belong to him. He's defrauded him, and he's run away. Now, in that situation, the slave, whose name is Onesimus, is in a lot of trouble. He's in a lot of legal trouble and potentially a lot of physical trouble. But thankfully, his master... Philemon, is a Christian, and he's a Christian that Paul knows. Now, Paul is an apostle. Not only is he an apostle, but in some sense, he must have had great spiritual influence in the development of Philemon's life. Now, as an apostle and an authority in the church, Paul has some abilities to tell people what the right thing to do is and demand it of him. But hear what he says in Philemon verses 8 and 9. Though I am bold enough, he says, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Notice that word appeal there in the English as well as in the Greek. It's the same word. Paul says in Philemon that he has the ability to command Philemon 
to do what is right. But instead, he says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I really think this is a good measure for leadership. Now, I don't mean to suggest here that you couldn't command. Paul clearly teaches the opposite. You can command. But I do think good leadership takes joy in someone choosing to do the right thing for themselves rather than having them wait until they're told what they must do. I can definitely say that's true in my house. It's true. I can tell my kids, hey, you have to do this, you have to do this, I'm your father, you have to listen to me, you have to do this, and so forth and so on. And because they've been raised a certain way, they will listen and they will do it. But what joy is there in that for me? The answer is there's none. It's a bare mechanical thing, isn't it? It's an exercise of my will and how much discipline I've placed in them. But beyond that, there's really not much of anything. How much better is it for me instead to see my children do what's right because it's right, not because I'm standing over them and demanding it of them. It's a completely different thing, isn't it? And not only that, but here in Philemon, actually it speaks of a father-son relationship that Paul has with them, that he has the authority to speak there. But here, Paul in Romans 12 is appealing to us as brothers, something closer to equal. He says, I'm appealing to you, therefore, brothers. Do the right thing because it's the right thing and from a heart of gratitude. You know, a lot of times when I talk to people in the church, this is a missing piece. There are people who don't want to do things at all because they fear that there are commands and their minds revolt from the idea that God is telling us to do things a certain way. And there are people who are all too eager to shout the demands of God to people, but from a bare mechanical command and disciplined response, but no heart of gratitude. But what we see so often in the scriptures, in fact, the very thing we're seeing here in Romans chapter 12, is that Paul is describing the awesome work that God has done for a people who do not deserve it. And he is saying from that fact, we may be appealed to, as we ought to have a a heart of gratitude, therefore to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Not only that, but he goes on to say that he appeals to us specifically by the mercies of God. The mercies of God, in fact, are first necessary before we can speak of how we are to react. This makes Christianity very, very different from the other religions of the world. Other religions of the world, other ways of thinking, often tell us that people have to correct their lives first, that is, they have to become acceptable on their own, and then God will accept them. But the scriptures speak of it very differently. They speak of us being made acceptable by God from his mercy. In fact, that's exactly the passage we just read from Romans 11. That God is merciful not just to the Jew, the Israelite, the Hebrew, but he is merciful also to the Gentile. 
that he has saved some from both of those. All of the people of the world, anyone who calls on his name will be saved. That is the great mercy of God, because not one of us deserves it. So Paul asks not how are we made right by our own actions, because he's already said all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There are none good, no, not one. Those are both from this very same book. Instead, Paul asks, because God was merciful to us, his people, in our unrighteousness, how, therefore, are we to respond? You know, the basic order of the book of Romans, broadly speaking, has by more than one person been said to be guilt, grace, gratitude. Here we find in Romans the layout of our lives as a life of gratitude in response to that great grace of God. Paul asks, how are we to respond based on what God has already done? He says we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is cultic language. Maybe you're surprised to hear that word, cultic language. I know uh, I used to teach mythology, and we talk about cultic practices, and people would have strange ideas what that means. It just means, in some sense, it's talking about religious sacrifice. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about religious sacrifice. Now, Jesus said something very interesting in the book of John about people trying to do worship for God. He said in John 16, 2, that a time would come when there would be people who would kill his disciples and think that they were doing a worship of God by doing so. Does that surprise you? Jesus predicts exactly how his own disciples will be treated all the way back in John 16. He's going to say they're going to think they're doing the right thing. Not just doing the right thing. They're going to think they're worshiping God when they kill you. Now, Who's the fulfillment of that? Well, the very guy who's writing the book of Romans was a fulfillment of that, wasn't he? Paul, when we know the beginning of his story, is someone who's chasing down Christians, persecuting Christians, and believing he is being very zealous for God in doing so. He thinks he's worshiping God by chasing down Christians. But when he has an encounter with Christ, everything is transformed so that by the time we reach Romans chapter 12, he's telling us instead that it is the giving of ourselves that is the worship, that is the sacrifice, not the trying to kill others. You know, there's plenty of people if you told them, hey, what God demands of you is that you go out and kill people. The history of humanity has demonstrated that there are always people who are willing to do that. But Paul tells us it's the opposite of that. Not that you would give someone else to God, not that you would destroy someone else for God, but that you would give up yourself for God as a sacrifice. Now, maybe those words scare you because you're thinking to yourself, is, is he telling me that I should end myself? I mean, that's what a sacrifice is. It's that it's often, especially in the scriptures, the taking of a life for God. Well, thankfully, Paul here tells us what type of sacrifice we ought to be. He says we ought to be a living sacrifice, meaning a daily sacrifice. Every aspect of our life ought to be a sacrifice. That's a whole lot harder than killing some other guy, which is wrong. It's wrong to kill him and saying you're doing the work of God while you commit murder. 
much easier even to lay down your life in a moment than to lay down every day of your life for God. Not as a special occasion, but as a regular occurrence. Right now, if you are hearing me, you ask yourself, what is the will of God for my life? The will of God for your life is that you would submit all of your life, even right now, to God and his direction. That's hard. I know it's hard. One of the ways I know it's hard is you could take anybody who's led people. They'll tell you the grand gesture is easy. Sad to say I've known a guy. He's the guy of the grand gesture. He loves the grand gesture. But to be the guy who just quietly pick up after the party, he's not going to do that. If he can splash in with uh, you know, the best food and the best decorations, the best dressed, the best music, any of those big things, he's happy to do. But to quietly pick up afterwards? No, no, no. Not going to do that. To help set up when no one's watching? No, 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 no. <laughs> not going to do that. But he's always there with a big present. Not someone who's going to live every day the right way. Maybe you could take this quote. Julius Caesar, that famous Caesar of Rome, said, it's easier to find a man who will die for something than to find one who will endure suffering with patience. Now, here's a guy who knew quite a bit about getting men to do things. He led a lot of men, led some of them into death, and quite a few of them threw some suffering along the way. Words ring true. Easier to find someone who makes the big gesture than someone who's willing to live every day in suffering. Sacrifice that God has for us is one in which we hold nothing back for ourselves, but exhaust everything for the Lord. That is, if you're saying to God, you can have this, but you can't have this, that's not the type of sacrifice that we're being called to. Being a follower of Christ cannot be one in a long list of activities that you're involved in. That's how a lot of People think about it. That's not how it is. Here at African Bible University, people often ask me about the Bible part. And I have to tell you, Bible is not something we just sprinkle on the top. We don't just sprinkle a little Bible on top of what we were already doing. We think the Bible should be a part of everything we're doing. It should be part of the whole Christian life. Because we're called to be Christians, and that's defined by what we see in God's Word. So when we teach, we teach as Christians. When we think, we think as Christians. It's not just something that happens in chapel, although it does definitely happen in chapel, but it ought to be something that you can see in our actions and the way we treat one another everywhere that we are. People think of themselves as, you know, a brother or a sister, a mom or a dad, a kid, a citizen, a student, a worker, and a Christian. But Paul's telling us in Romans that if you're a brother, you ought to be a Christian brother. If you're a mother, you ought to be a Christian mother. If you're a worker, you ought to be a Christian worker. If you're an athlete, you ought to be a Christian athlete, that you ought to carry Christ with you everywhere and everything you do. There may have been a time where the assumption that people were Christians was so strong that it could almost go without saying. You might almost blend in. Just by being a Christian, you might almost blend in. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. If they ever existed, I'm not 100% convinced they ever did, but if they ever did, they're gone. If you're a Christian, you're going to stand out. If you're a Christian in business, you're going to stand out. If you're a Christian in the classroom, you're going to stand out. If you're a Christian on the radio, you're going to stand out. And that's okay. If you don't, 
You ought to ask yourself some questions. It's not that you have to, you know, have a I love Jesus patch on your shirt or a what would Jesus do band around your wrists or that you have to carry a Bible with you or have tracks in your pocket that everyone can see. I'm not saying all those things. What I'm saying is if you live your life in submission to Christ, I mean, just trying to do what he's taught us to do in his word, people will see that you're different. This is precisely what Christ talks about when he says that we're salt and light in this world. You will be noticed as being different. And it takes all of you. It takes all of you. Paul goes on to say that we are a sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God. Now, this kind of presents a bit of a problem for us, and I think that's where the question I originally received was generated about this passage. How can Paul here say we are holy and acceptable as a sacrifice to God when so much of the scriptures are talking about us being an inadequate and unholy sacrifice? We are not, the scriptures teach, holy or undefiled by nature. That word undefiled, as we see it in the Bible, is talking about not being polluted, not having had participation in seeing things that are very bad. Now, we also happen to know exactly how God sees unholy and unacceptable sacrifices. This is what he says, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Man, there's not a lot of space in there for us, is there? Not a lot of room in there for us to think of ourselves as being super holy or being super acceptable. Paul goes on in Romans 6.23 to say the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we deserve? We deserve death. Now, how does God view defiled sacrifices? Well, if you go to the book of Malachi, remember I mentioned that at the beginning, and we're going to look at it together if you follow through with some more episodes. I promise if you'll hang with me, in the coming episodes, you're going to find there's so much richness in the book of Malachi. I hope you, you find your way following through with me on that. One of those passages, Malachi 1, verse 10. Remember I told you God says some hard things? That's what God says to his people in Malachi 1, 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you says the Lord of hosts, I will not accept an offering from your hand. So if you're asking yourself, how does God see us presenting the wrong sacrifices, unholy sacrifices, unacceptable sacrifices, the very God that taught them how to build the building and told them to build it, the very one who told them how to make the fire for the sacrifice, when to make it, how to make it, where to make it, the very one who says, you need to make sacrifices for me, that very God said, because of the evil things they were doing, and then they were trying to turn around and bring sacrifices to him? In, in some cases, sacrifices that were stolen, sacrifices that had broken limbs, that had blemishes and spots and so forth and so on. God says in Malachi 1.10, I would rather you put the fire out and close the door than bring sacrifices like that. So the question I was asked, how can God accept us, as Paul says here, if we're not holy, if we're not righteous, and God doesn't accept unrighteous sacrifices, how can we be acceptable to God? The answer, of course, is in Christ Jesus. Paul has gone to great lengths 
throughout the book of Romans to indicate to us that God is the one who makes us right. Romans 4.25 says, Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ died because of who we are. Not only that, he was raised, it says, for our very justification. That is, we are made right by God because of the work of Christ. He sees us as justified. Romans 8.4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when the law looks at the people of God, because of the work of Christ Jesus, the requirements of the law have been satisfied. That's why it can say that our living sacrifice in life is holy and acceptable. Romans 10 says this, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Another way of saying this is, there's no way that if you have Christ, you're going to pursue the law as your righteousness. Because if you do, you're going back to the old way, the ignorant way in which people tried to make themselves righteous by following the law. They, they didn't see the extent and the harm of their transgressions. They didn't really believe how unrighteous they were. So the right way to see Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is this. We were an unacceptable sacrifice. Christ, in his great mercy, was sent by the Father to live a perfect life and die a death on behalf of his people which he did. And as the scriptures say, we are viewed as the righteousness of God in him. And for that reason, out of a heart of gratitude, we now respond with a sacrificial life, not to achieve the work of our salvation, but because the work of our salvation has already been achieved. The great mercy of God has already been displayed towards us. And we may have confidence that God will receive our lives as a living sacrifice, not because of our own goodness, but because of the goodness and the work of Christ on our behalf. Another way of saying this is because Christ makes us holy and acceptable to God from a heart of gratitude. We should submit all of ourselves to God daily as a living sacrifice. For us, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I hope this is encouragement to you as it's been to me. You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university.